Tonight's New Testament reading is from John 10, verses 11 to 21. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, He has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one who is opposed, <clears throat> oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? This is the word of the Lord. Would you join me as we pray? We are in need of your guidance, Good Shepherd. We are in need of your care. We're in need of rescue. We do need you as we um, were singing earlier, God. Would you do your work right now as we gather around your living word? In Christ's name, amen. There are some people, when you think about who they are, their identity, you can't separate it from what they have done the passion that has defined them. For instance, Thomas Edison. His passion was, yeah, light bulb, inventor. I'll give you an easier one, okay? <laughs> Sammy Sosa, baseball, right, home runs, his passion. Yo-Yo Ma, there, cello, there we go. Right. There are folks where, you know, as soon as you think of their name, if you know the name, you know what they did. Well, the same could be said of Jesus Christ. If you know the name, you know the thing he was defined by, and if we picked a word, I think we could say sacrifice. Jesus Christ, if he is known, 
He is known by his sacrifice. He said as much. Calling himself the Son of Man, he said, For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. The echo, we find it in this passage where he says the good life lays down, or rather the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Now, I really can't think of anything that's more impacting, that leaves a greater impression on you and I than when someone sacrifices for us. I think these are the things that stay, whether it be small sacrifices like they could go away for the weekend but they stay back because they know you're moving or they'll wake up really early and take you to the airport. It's the sacrifices that we remember. Maybe they're larger sacrifices like the grandmother or the mother that raised us and took care of us. This month we celebrate Black History Month and we remember the contribution and sacrifices of African Americans. And last night uh, the film from 1989, Academy Award winning, uh, winning film, Glory, was on. Maybe some of you have seen it. It really is a wonderful film. It's been a while since I've seen it. And it tells the true story of the first official African-American uh, unit where soldiers were serving in the Civil War. And, of course, coming under much publicity, but also skepticism, and it tells the story particularly of their assault on Fort Wagner where with little sleep and little food and little water um, they went up against that challenge waiting for reinforcements that never came never retreating and losing half of their number as they did so and even though it might not go down as the military victory what it did it opened doors for many many more black soldiers to serve. If these sort of sacrifices inspire us, the little ones and the big ones, can you imagine what it could do for your life if you understood that God himself sacrificed his life for you? Can you just imagine the impact that might have? If all these other in sacrifices inspire us so, and this is what Jesus is putting before us. We're taking a second run in this passage where Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. We're going through these I am statements where the first part is Jesus asserting, I am Lord God, I am, the great I am. But then he takes a figure of speech or a metaphor and helps us understand his identity, calling it Jesus on Jesus. And there are two that fall under the good shepherd. Last week we looked at the idea of the way Jesus gives access to God. This week, we look at the idea of Jesus being Lord of sacrifice. Out of all the sacrifices that have been made in the world, and there have been many, and they have been noble, there is none that can come close to this one, the Lord of the sacrifice. And he does this in comparing himself over and against the religious leaders of Israel at that time, the scribes and Pharisees. But whereas before Jesus would use the contrast of true and false, he would say, I am the true light or true vine. 
and he would chide the religious leaders for their being false. Here, the comparison is actually between noble and honorable and dishonorable. That's what he means by good. And he says to the leaders, you have been dishonorable shepherds toward the people of God. And he asserts, I am the good shepherd coming to act nobly on the behalf of God's people. And this through a sacrifice. And I want to look at it through three different ways. It's a willing sacrifice, it's an atoning sacrifice, and it's a uniting sacrifice. Those three things. First of all, a willing sacrifice. And we see it by willing concern, first and foremost. Now, a shepherd of that day if they were noble, if they were a good shepherd, it wasn't uncommon that they would count their sheep twice a day. I mean, there's a hundred sheep. That's a lot of work. And because they were the first online to give medical care, they counted them in a particular careful sort of way. I mean, looking at the sheep and knowing them intimately. I mentioned last week, some shepherds could actually tell by appearance the individual sheep they had and would call them by name. They would nurse them to health. They would also know which ones were vulnerable to beasts, which was a threat at that time. A hired hand, on the other hand, would have no sort of obligation. Before Jesus had said, last week, he said, religious leaders, you are like thieves and robbers, and that there the charge was wickedness. Here the charge is self-interest. As hired hands, you are interested for yourself and not the sheep. He says that they flee at times of trouble. You care nothing about the sheep. So the one thing that distinguishes the good shepherd is his concern, his care and concern. Uh, this past weekend, my family went up to Pittsburgh to be uh, part of the first anniversary of my brother-in-law's death. It occurred about a year ago, suddenly, tragically, for our family. And we had a small uh, gathering, uh, just sort of semicircle, about 20 people, some people of uh, Jewish faith, some people of no faith, some people of Christian faith. There we are gathered together, family and friends, you know, looking at this snow-covered hill, just a flag where the gravestone would be. And my sister uh, asked if we could read Psalm 34 because it is a psalm that has sustained her through this last year. These are some of the words of that. I sought the Lord, and he answered me, and he delivered me from all of my fears. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Now, as we have walked with my sister and talked, uh, there have been plenty of times she's not been faking religion, <laughs> plenty of times where she has felt lost and like everything has been taken from her. But the testimony that keeps bubbling up and is sustained the entire year, and I've heard it from her, even if she hasn't noticed, she said it to me, is, Glenn, I know God is with me. I feel him with me. He is near me. He encamps around me. I feel his presence. And so it's the concern of God 
that she's talking about. The concern we heard in that Old Testament reading where God looks upon the shepherds failing to do their job and he says, I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep. I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord. I will seek the lost. I will bring back the strayed. I will bind up the injured and I will strengthen the weak. I will feed them in justice. You hear the repetition there of the personal pronoun. I, God saying, I myself, Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of that because he is God in the flesh that comes among the sheep. He claims that I myself will come and show concern. In the book of Matthew, we're told that Jesus was moving from city to town and he is healing everybody that needed healing and had afflictions. And it's said that he came up one day upon the crowd and he was full of compassion because they looked like sheep without a shepherd. The good shepherd full of concern. And so, it puts the question before you and I here today, do you believe that God has concern for you? Do you believe that he cares for you? And I'm not talking about humanity in general. I'm asking you, do you believe that God is concerned for your needs, your burdens, and your struggles? And more so, do you believe it's a priority to him? Jesus told a parable where he talked about a farmer that had a hundred sheep. And he said one of the sheep got lost and would not the farmer leave the 99, excuse me, to go and seek the one sheep. This is the sort of level of concern. And this is what you see in the gospel. The good shepherd goes to the bowels of hell so he can retrieve the sheep. Do you believe that God is concerned about you? But there's also a willing surrender. Now, the suffering and death of Jesus is interpreted in many different ways. Some people say it's an example of dying for a cause of giving your all for a cause. Others would say that uh, it was basically a sad, accidental act of oppression and violence. Jesus is an example of the way victims are oppressed and done evil in the world. There are Christians that would say that Jesus came to repair uh, God's affection for us, that God is basically mad at the world, and so Jesus changes his heart and mind. I want you to listen to what Jesus says. This is how Jesus interprets his own death. No one takes it, my life, from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. And in that, we see a couple things, right? A different interpretation. One, Jesus is saying that his death wasn't accidental, he wasn't powerless, but rather he had full power to avoid it if he would have chosen to. But rather, freely of his own accord, he gave his life. You know, back in that time, a shepherd may be willing to die for a sheep. It didn't happen often. He may be willing to die for a sheep, but he would never intentionally die for a sheep. And the good shepherd is saying that his express purpose for coming was to intentionally die, lay his life down, for his sheep. 
It also dispels this notion that God was unwilling to love us and Jesus had to change his mind. Because Jesus says the charge to lay down his life came from the Father. John 16, says, 3.16 rather says that God so loved the world that he gave his Son. That the heart of God, you see God the Father and the Son and the Spirit, the tri-personal God, were united in their affection and love. The Son... The Son is delighted to please the Father in this way. In fact, if there's any driving force for Jesus greater than his love for sinners, it's his love for his Father. It's his love to please his Dad, his Abba Father. And the Father, too, it says here, loves the Son's selfless surrendering for the sheep. He said, my Father loves me for this. You know, if our niece or nephew or son or daughter wins some award for doing something great. You know, we're just so proud. But if we hear that they did a selfless, heroic act, man, now that's a whole different level of pride. And so the father looks at the son and his willingness to, to lay aside eternal glory and his willingness to be humbled into flesh and blood and walk as a finite human being and his willingness to suffer and his willingness to endure suffering and torture and his willingness to be considered a, you know, as a curse and his willingness to be scorned and his willingness to be pinned with nails to a cross. The father sees that and it's such joy to him not the act of evil itself but the love that the son has but lastly while the while the the torture and death of Jesus Christ was an evil deed an unjust deed God had planned all along to hijack it for his good purposes the early church understood this you see it worked into their preaching Listen to what they say. This is early preaching from the church. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. And so you understand, Jesus, as he interprets his own death, says to you and I, it was not about the fact that I didn't have any other options. It wasn't about the fact that I was manipulated or I forced. It wasn't by the fact that I was guilted in any way. And he makes clear that there was one reason why he lays down his life for the sheep. And that reason is he wanted to. He wanted to. It was an act of overflowing, willing love for his people. And that means that every one of us here that has received him that way, you need to know this. That Jesus Christ never regrets having laid down his life for you. I don't, I don't care how many times that your heart is lukewarm toward him instead of warm. How many times that you've screwed up again with that habitual vice how many times you and I seek to build our own little kingdoms in Washington instead of the kingdom of God. He never, ever regrets having laid down his life for you in joy and in freedom. It was for the joy set before him that he laid down his life. It was for the goodwill and pleasure of the Father that his life was given for you and I.
And that is a powerful thing. If you and I could begin to work that into who we are, knowing that God never regrets what he did for me. I mean, we wouldn't stay away from him when we screw up like we do. We wouldn't try to seek to find our sense of value in making our mark in Washington or someone basically giving us approval romantically or, you know, fill in the blank. It's his wanting heart, his willing heart that begins to overcome us. So it's a willing sacrifice. Next, part of it being noble, it's an atoning sacrifice. Jesus says that he lays his life down for the sheep. Now that little preposition for in the Gospel of John, wherever it appears, the context is sacrifice. Sacrificial context. And it's not a moral example sacrifice. It's sacrifice on behalf of someone. And the New Testament would let us know that it's on behalf of those that believe in him for their sin, their guilt, and their shame. This is what Jesus means by saying, I lay down my life for my sheep. I am an atoning sacrifice for you. That's what he means. Now today, that idea is an offensive idea. That God would need to give an atoning sacrifice of his son to save people. Some people would say, well, isn't that divine child abuse? But it really is a poor analogy because, one, it forgets to understand that the Father and Son and Spirit are equal. But also what I just said and what Jesus had taught us, right, that it was voluntarily that he gave his life. Some people would say that a bodily sacrifice is just plain barbaric. And to that, the Bible would say, you're right. Human sacrifice is never advocated in the pages of the Bible. In fact, it's condemned as immoral, but also useless and foolish. I mean, as much as you might want to lay down your life for me, you can't do it. And I can't atone for you. The Psalms say that. That's not news to the Bible. The Heidelberg Catechism, which is you know hundreds of years old and a wonderful thing to read, they pose questions and answer them. And the question was, can a mere creature pay for our sins? No, here's the answer. In the first place, God would not punish another creature for the sin which man has committed. Furthermore, no more creature can sustain the burden of God's eternal wrath against sin. Or rather, no mere creature can sustain the burden of God's eternal wrath against sin and deliver others from it. But while a human being sacrificed wouldn't achieve that purpose, it doesn't mean that God himself would not have to become human to atone us. Those things aren't mutually exclusive. And some of this has to do with the way modern people understand who they are. As modern people, we tend to forget that everything we do, we do in the body, whether it's good or bad. You know, we, we aren't someone that sort of lives here. We often believe that I can live in a certain way in my body that doesn't affect the rest of my life. And so whether I put my arm around you or strike you, everything that's done good and bad is done in the body. And so the idea that God would come in body and offer his life as an atoning sacrifice isn't so far afield. But the third struggle we have with this is, is our guilt so great 
that it would require the Son of God to give his life. And that really depends on how you measure your morality. I mean, when I measure my life according to the standard of Glenn, the law of Glenn, or when I do selective measuring, like I pick the people that I think are equal to me morally or beneath me morally, when I do that, I come off looking pretty good. I mean, I don't know about you all, but, you know, if you do your standard of what you think you ought to do, and then you do that horizontal thing, you'll come off looking pretty good. It's when I look at the law of God that says love your neighbor with everything you've got, or rather love God with everything you've got, and love your neighbor as much as you love yourself, meaning think about he or she as much as you think about yourself, that impulse every day to say, How, what am I going to do today? What's my to-do list? Uh, what, what are my goals for my life? I'm thinking about my neighbor. Instead, when I think about that and I look at the life of Jesus, I don't look so good. I don't look so great. But the good news is this. If you begin to see Jesus when you look at him that way, what you'll see is not just the law of God personified. You'll see the good shepherd that laid down his life for you, sacrificed his life. I am the good shepherd, he says. I know my own and my own know me, and I lay down my life for the sheep. If you and I could really come to believe that the Son of God sacrificed himself for us, now that would be a transforming event in Washington, D.C. A community of people that really believed that he did that. And that my guilt was so great, but he loved me so much, much more. You know, Tim Keller has been famous for saying for some years, you know, the, the beauty of the gospel is this, that we're more sinful and flawed than we ever dared believe, but we're more accepted and loved through Christ than we ever dared hoped. This is what we find in the laying down of Jesus' life. But it also raises a question or two I need to briefly hit. Because this passage often raises the question and the debate, to whom is Jesus referring when he says, I lay my life down for the sheep? And some of you that know theology know this comes in the tag of unlimited atonement or limited atonement or definite atonement or indefinite atonement. I'm not going to explain those. But there's three basic views. One is that Jesus basically is talking about everybody, universalism. He's referring to all people, that he lays his life down for the sheep. Whether you believe, accept him, you might even hate and oppose him. But the problem with that is it runs so contrary to everything that we find in the Bible, it can't be the answer. The second of all is that Jesus was talking about potential atonement for those that believe in him. God so loved the world that he gave his only son for those that believe. And so... It's that his life is offering potential atonement for those that receive it. And it, many sincere and devoted Christians have that point of view. It may be you here this evening have that point of view. And it appears fair and it appears logical. But as I read the scriptures, this passage in the New Testament, I think they go further than that. They go further. And that is... They don't teach that Jesus' life was an indiscriminate offering for nameless and unknown people that might choose, but rather that Jesus was laying his life down for those he knew, his sheep. When you look at the Bible and the way it understands salvation, you understand that it's one 
steady stream. For instance, the book of Romans would say this, those that God foreknew, that actually means foreloved, he predestined. Those he predestined, he called. Those he called, he justified. Those he justified, he glorified. Do you hear it there? It's one stream of salvation, unbroken. And you see that reflected here in Jesus' words, the logic. The ones that he knows by name or the ones that are called by name are the ones that are his own, and those are the ones that he lays his life down for. That's what seems consistent. But then it also resonates with other New Testament passages. Let me read these briefly. For instance, the book of Hebrews says that Christ's death obtained redemption. Not just offered it, but obtained it. The book of Revelation would say that the church is the body. The church had been purchased with the blood of God. Purchased. So something actually transacted and happened. Other passages that Christ gave himself to redeem. And even the Old Testament passage of Isaiah 53 that's so famous, talking about the Messiah says that it was his death that accounted people righteous. So I think what represents the scripture that we see here is that Jesus laid his life down and it actually accomplished something. It achieved something. It achieved salvation. Salvation is a, a full package deal that he doesn't just offer, but he bestows upon people. The Bible teaches that salvation comes when God unites people to himself through Jesus Christ. And that union is never thought about apart from his death. But it raises two questions. One is, what about those passages that do say that his life was laid down for the world? First John 2 that says you know, that Christ's death was an atoning sacrifice, not only for us, but for the sins of the world. Well, there's another passage in Romans where God would say that Christ died for all and all died. But unless you're going to say that that's a passage teaching universalism, you're going to ultimately going to have to say that there's a scope of meaning in that. For instance, let me give you a quick example. Last week, it's after the service, and uh, you have some friends, and you say, uh, hey, do you all want to come watch the Super Bowl with me? Obviously, you're not inviting the whole church. The y'all has a smaller focus. So what the Bible would be saying is that Jesus laid his life down for all men without distinction, not without exception. Without distinction would mean every kind of person, every tribe, tongue, and nation. But that raises up the last objection before we move to the last point, and that is, is that fair? Well, let me just say this. Even if you reject the interpretation I just gave, and I'm sure some of you do, it doesn't take away the question, why doesn't God save everybody? That question is still on the table. And it gets to a deeper thing in us that we all struggle with. And that is, in our mind, in our mind, in our logic, in our thought, we understand that salvation isn't really by grace. This is where we struggle. Because we're reminded through this passage that the good shepherd lays his life down not because he owes it, but because he cheerfully gives it. You see, you and I need to remember, and this passage takes us to a place that's hard to be, that as both the Old Testament and New Testament teach us, that all, all of us are sheep that have gone astray, each to his own way. I mean, if I begin to presume 
that I know the mind of God, and I don't. I understand that God might have his reasons that I can't figure out. And even if this passage leads me a mystery, I can live in that place. Or it might prevent me from judging God's character as unrighteous because am I his moral peer? It's a dangerous place to go there. But more so, it helps me preserve this idea that God's mercy is truly his good mercy, that it was God himself that sent his son to redeem a multitude of people without number from the four corners of the earth when I won't even go three blocks to help my neighbor. It's the mercy of God that shines through this passage. You know, I raise these questions and the objections because they're there in the passage and we need to look at them when we need to see them. But I don't do it so that we might miss the glory of it and that is the intimacy of God's love for any and all that believe in Him. Anybody tonight that would believe in Him, you would know that he died for you by name, that he knew you by name, and nothing would stop him from not just offering you potential salvation, but for accomplishing your salvation. But lastly, it's uniting sacrifice. In that, his death unites the world. He says, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. And there's a question about what are these other sheep here? Uh, is this Israel who was scattered? Is it the Samaritans who are sort of considered as half-breeds by the Israelites? The best option is that they are the Gentiles, the non-Jewish members of society. This is who Jesus is referring to. The ones that are hinted of in the Old Testament that the Messiah will reach. Psalm 87 where God says, you know, I will say of Egypt and those of Babylon and those of Africa and Sudan, I will say of those people, you were born in Zion. He reads the roll call of God's people. It's those that the prophet Zechariah talks about when he says, many peoples and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts and entreat the favor of the Lord. In those days, ten men from the nations of every tongue shall take hold of the robe of a Jew, saying, Let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. Jesus is the fulfillment of this prophecy. This is what he's talking about here. And it tells us three things to close. One, Jesus is the one driving the global expansion of his gospel. It's always been the case. Jesus, in his heart, is the one driving it. It was Jesus who died and raised and rose and ascended to say, go into all the world and preach the gospel. It was Jesus who sent the Spirit of God at what was called Pentecost, where the nations begin to hear the word. It was Jesus that established the first multi-ethnic racial church in Antioch, the first you know, church that's put together in the Christian uh, early Christian world. It's Jesus who converts and commissions the Apostle Paul who would be the great missionary to the Gentiles. It's Jesus' passion that has been driving his love for the world from the beginning. Second of all, from this Jesus reminds us that there are no lesser sheep. In the first, gener in the first century there was a controversy where uh, there were some Jews who said to Gentiles, you need to become Jewish first before you can become Christian. And so they were saying there are lesser sheep. But Jesus says that those of the other fold are his sheep. And of course, this has been perpetuated throughout history in the way in Western Europe and America, white Christians have made those of other races inferior or have depicted art 
you know, in representations of biblical characters as if they're white when they weren't. But it happens in ways other than race when someone might view another Christian who perhaps doesn't have spiritual gifts or look at spiritual gifts their way as a lesser Christian. Or someone might look at a Christian that doesn't embrace their theology, even some of the theology that I just articulated, as a lesser Christian. Or maybe someone that lives in the suburbs as a Christian. There's all different ways that we can make people feel like lesser Christians. And here Jesus reminds us, if his sacrifice is by grace, and it is by grace, there is no righteousness to be claimed. All the sheep belong to him. But lastly, he talks about the mission of one flock and one shepherd. In this teaching Jesus gives here, it becomes the foundation for the church. For instance, when the Apostle Paul will say, you know, I want you to be humble, I want you to stay together because there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. It's Jesus' teaching here that is the bedrock for that, which we read later. And it means this. If you regard the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ as essential and necessary, if you do, you must also regard a multi-ethnic, multi-racial people of God as essential because they're in the same breath. It's in that breath that Jesus talks about laying down his life that he then says, and I will have sheep of all different fold. And then Ephesians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul says the same thing. He said, we've been brought near by the blood of Christ, therefore walls will come down between races and ethnicities. It becomes not something that would be nice. It's essential to the gospel. That's what we find here. And the way the church does it is different than the world. The world would say, let's all get together and create unity. The Bible says, no, you don't create unity. Only God, who is one, creates unity. And he has already broken down the walls. He's already done the work from his death and the resurrection. So what you and I are called to do is recover the unity that's been lost. You know, the fences or walls that we put up, and all of us have done it. I told you I'm part of the City Pastors Group, which is a group of D.C. Uh, pastors and church planters from different denominations, uh, cross-denomination, cross-race and ethnicity, and we've been get, having these lunches together. And last week we had a lunch, and the topic was uh, racial reconciliation. And a couple of the African-American brothers, uh, some have been in, and some of them have been men that have been in churches in D.C. for 40 years. I was so delighted because many times these gatherings are just sort of the pastors of new churches. And here we were in this room, and as these brothers began to think and just reflect, they said something that I thought was so poignant. They said, please, let's not talk about this as an issue to solve, but rather a relationship to cultivate, a relationship to grow. And relationships can be hard, right? Relationships are messy. You get the honest stuff in relationships. But one of the ways the church is different is we don't look at it as an issue to be solved, but we do relationship together as one flock, one sheepfold together. So our good shepherd does much, my friends. His willingness impels us. His atoning sacrifice secures us. His uniting sacrifice gives us vision for what our community and church ought to be. Let's pray. Jesus, would you help us to do these things for your name's sake? Amen.